Good morning, Madam Chair. The first uh, work session uh, for City Council on the proposed Navy Hill project is called to order. If you would read the evacuation announcement. Upon activation of the emergency alarm signal, all persons should immediately exit the building. Please use the exits to the left or right front of council chamber or the east-west stairway outside the rear doors of the chamber. Do not use the elevators or the escalator. After exiting the building, proceed to the assembly area located in the parking lot bordered by Clay 8th and 9th Streets. Citizens and employees should assist visually in hearing impaired visitors with exiting the building. And Madam President, other members of council who are currently present are Councilor Jones, Robertson, and Addison. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Uh, just for the record, we do have members who will join us. Uh, Ms. Gray will not join us today, however, due to prior uh, scheduled family uh, appointments, medical appointments. Mr. Agilesto will join us for the afternoon session. Ms. Larson has just joined us. Uh, and Mr. Uh, Hilbert will um, join us uh, a little later as well. So today we begin City Council's work sessions to enable us to fully vet the proposed Navy Hill project. We have up to nine work sessions that have been scheduled, five of which have been identified, that will allow us to do a deep dive into the various aspects of the proposed project. Um, the uh, staff will, uh, the first five of the uh, first five sessions have been identified, things from finance and operating structure to uh, meeting with ORIC uh, and our bond council to looking at community benefits, to looking at project financing, et cetera. The last four sessions will be uh, defined based on and determined based on additional uh, information that City Council would like to have. You will recall this is the same process that we use to vet, uh, review, and approve this year's uh, city budget. I will also remind you that we have, uh, Council has other strategies that it will be utilizing to assist in vetting the proposed Navy Hill project. The Navy Hill Commission will be seated uh, it is expected to be in panel and seated in discussions this afternoon. We're looking at retaining an independent consultant to provide a review of the project. Uh, many of council members have already started to hold district meetings, but others will as well to uh, ensure that residents have information about the project and can have an opportunity to comment uh, as well as get questions answered. And then certainly city council will have uh, public hearings on all of the papers and the project overall. With that, uh, the today's project. Uh, Matt, Council President. Ms. Larson. Um, so when we decided we were gonna have these work sessions, I wasn't here. Um, so was there any discussion about how all these pieces are gonna interface? Like you just mentioned the commission, the report, like, Okay, if we're in a meeting receiving information, start asking questions about something, how is, is the commission going to also look at that? I mean, how are we, we breaking down the, this proposal and the details at the same time the commission is, at the same time the outside study is, like how are these three things 
going to connect at some point. So, and that's why we have sessions that have not been um, delineated and determined, four of them out of the nine, the first five have been. But these are um, opportunities to fully vet what is a proposed 30-year, $1.5 billion project that would need all eyes on it. And so I don't see that we do one and wait for the other. They are, these things are happening in tandem. As council members, we are responsible for fully vetting and being able to capture um, citizen comment, feedback, opinions, et cetera. And we'll do that in a variety of ways. The commission will allow us to do that. Citizens, though, citizen body that will hold community meetings throughout, the, so that'll go on. We've already started doing district meetings in our community, so it's not as if we are saying, let's wait for one thing to happen. They're happening in tandem. And then we will have the opportunity to bring together, we have four sessions that have not been determined that allows us to bring these pieces back together. So what if an issue comes up and this body decides they want further analysis? And who decides, I'm sorry? What? I didn't hear the... Okay, so. so if an issue comes up mm -hmm. and this body decides or there seems to be some consensus, whether it's formal or informal, that we want further analysis of it, then I would like to know what that looks like. Um, you know, do we collectively say, hey, can we pass this off to the commission so their um, folks can look at this. Do we need to roll this into the third party analysis? I guess uh, you're saying that will come later, you know, at one of our work sessions that hasn't been laid out yet. I guess I would like to know that more on the front end because if, if we already have four work sessions scheduled and an issue comes up that I feel like needs a deep dive and we, this body's not going to necessarily be the mechanism to do that deep dive, then where does it go? We have multiple opportunities. The question I was responding to, at least I thought you were asking, how do all of the parts come together? So the independent study, the recommendation, the recommendation back from the commission, the information we gather in our district meetings, where do we have opportunity to bring that together? That's something we have sessions that we are able to gather uh, and have further conversation. If there are questions that this body wants to have deeper dive on, we don't have to wait. As we did with the budget sessions, when we go through, if there is a question, staff takes that, it either gets addressed by the administration or we look at what uh, entities would provide that additional information such that that can come back to council at the next work session. We don't have to wait. That doesn't bode well, I think, for anyone who's mm -hmm. trying to really do due diligence in terms of vetting this project. So I think with the budget, you're right, the normal process is it goes to the administration because they're the ones presenting to us. Um, but we have set up these other mechanisms to also get feedback from. So I, I don't know. Do any other council members? Yeah. Get where I'm going with this. 
I mean, I would, I would just like for, I don't, I don't want the commission to just do their work in a silo. I don't want this third party report just to be so we can check a box that we did it. I want all this, I don't want to come here Mondays until the end of this year for three hours and just waste my time. I want this to be productive. So that's why I'm saying this now. So I'm not sitting here for three sessions and then wondering where all this information is going. And we can, uh, I have um, asked Megan to prepare a draft of the items just based on the questions that have come up thus far about the proposed project so that those are captured in the next set of sessions. This is meant to provide, again, the level of due diligence that um, I think we all want to see with such a proposed project. I don't think that in this instance we can look at simply having one opportunity, one set of eyes on this. It's multiple and it's bringing that information together so we can make a good decision on behalf of the citizens of the city. And uh, if there are items that come up, and again, some have already come up, folks have said we want to meet with bond council. That's on the agenda. I'm capturing those. We're capturing and bringing back. If there are others, I'm not, uh, we don't need to meet to meet, number one. This is an intent to enable us to fully vet. And if there are items that you see uh, needing and wanting more information on, uh, staff will do as we did during capture that and figure out how to get those responses by uh, in advance of, but certainly not later than the next session. These are, I, I see this, uh, Ms. Larson, this is a 30-year, uh, multi-generational, $1.5 major project that requires a level of due diligence uh, beyond anything we've utilized before, because we've not had anything this uh, momentous before us. And so um, I am wanting to make sure that we have the best information to make the best decision uh, for the city, notwithstanding or foregoing any of the uh, uh, information, but incorporating it all, moving in tandem. And um, yeah, that's where we are. I'll just, if there are any other comments, um, I'll take each person and then we're gonna get underway because we are indeed behind time. Thank, thank you, Madam President. Um, I believe this is an opportunity for us as a council to sit down and go through this information and, and, and discuss and do our due diligence. Um, I know that, and, and what, what everyone may not be aware of, uh, I asked uh, council chief of staff uh, and Madam President, you and I had, had a discussion that there were specific things that I wanted information on and I'd like to uh, get the individuals from Navy Hill and everyone else to a finance committee meeting to simply talk about finances. Um, and that doesn't override anything that the commission is doing, anything that Davenport has done, anything that a third party would do because in the end, the votes lie with us. They, they, they don't lie with the administration, with Davenport, with the commission. It lies with us and so for me, you know, I want to make sure that I have all of my questions answered, and I know how I process. I appreciate 
um, the gray matter brought to the table by my colleagues. And so to be in a session with my colleagues and hear their input, their questions, um, and their perspective, that's invaluable uh, to me. And so that's why I wanted them to come to uh, a finance committee meeting. But, you know, in talking with the two of you, I've said, okay, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll hold off because, again, we can't have enough conversations. Um, and again, I'm, I will never be, nor do I want to be a subject matter expert on this, but I need to know as much information as possible. And there's things that I've been doing in district since last, gosh, May. We had someone come out and talk to uh, the constituents of the ninth district simply about what a TIF is because I knew that this deal was going to entail a TIF um, or some TIF-like structure, and I wanted to make sure the residents of the 9th District had a conversation about what that, what that was. And so I actually brought someone who uh, is, uh, they're not sold on it from what I read on their social media pages. They're not a proponent of it. But again, I didn't ask him to come, I didn't ask them to come and give their feeling on the project, I said, come and teach our folk what a TIF is, because that's what their expertise is. Had another meeting where I sat down with a professor who does urban design to talk simply about this process. Didn't ask, how do you feel about it? Because that's not what's at issue. Can you help me understand the nuts and bolts of it? And so for me, this is the next step, because if this doesn't happen, then I want to bring them to a finance committee meeting and let's talk about cash flow. Let's talk about different things. Let, let's get into this. And again, I don't have time to be at every commission meeting. Um, and I understand, I'm sorry, the one thing I understand are reports. Reports will just simply detail what they want to share. It won't have every, every interaction. It will just simply have how they interpret what happened. And even with that presupposition, you need to make sure that that's understood. But again, they have their task. We have ours, and I do believe we should have a third party come in and say, hey, what do we think? But what I hope my colleagues would do on either side, let's look at this objectively and see, is this the right thing for the city? If it is, great. If it's not, great. It's great on either side. And I, that's what's troubling, that people, and in the media as well, folk are trying to put me in a camp that I ain't said I'm in yet. I don't know if he's here yet. Mr. Jones? No, hold on, hold on, Madam President. I take yes, exception to this. Hold on now, hold on, hold on. Up. This is just a work session, so I'm working yes. through my session. Mr. Jones? Oh, yes, ma'am, Madam okay. President, hold on, hold on now, hold on. Folk want to try and castigate individuals simply because I'm trying to do my job. I've had Navy Hill out, folk out to a district meeting that my folk appreciated the information. They just appreciate it, and, I, and, and we still didn't get through it. <laughs> we still didn't get through it. So they need to come back out again and present again. And again, for me right now, it's not about whether people are for or against, because no one has fully vetted this thing to say on our end to say, hey, here are the nuts and bolts of it. Don't tell me why you like it. Show me how it's a bad business deal. And business doesn't mean emotions, and I'm tired of hearing people's emotive response to all of this. The commission, I'm interested to see what the commission does. Once we get the commission up and going, they're going to do their job. 
Mr. Jones. Yes, ma'am. I'm just Thank I'm you. just going on the record. So, yes. so, so it's on the record. But Do again, I hope that we could sit down and discuss this as a group of nine. If not, then I want and I will go on That's record and say I want them to come to finance committee uh, finance committee meeting so we can talk about the financial implications of this deal. Thank that you. is prudent. Thank you. Um, I will say, just as Thank you, you have President. had experience of people already indicating what our vote is, we know we have not voted. We know we are taking every measure to do due diligence relative to this project. So notwithstanding what's out in the press or in the public, we will do the work to make sure that this project is one or is not and Madam President, if folk one. don't want to come, Thank you. that's on them. If folk don't want to come to this meeting that we had five votes in, you know, Ms. rule of five, Ms. hold on now, rule of five works when it doesn't work in certain people's favor. Thank and you. And it doesn't work when it doesn't. And so, again, print that, run, tell that, tweet it, post Thank it, you, whatever. Mr. Jones. I'm just saying, Madam President, because we have you. members of council that do not act professionally and they want to attack other individuals when Mr. it's Jones. expedient for them. Thank you. Mr. So let them know. If they have something to say, come say it here. Come Thank do their job and don't blast us because we want to look at a project. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Addison or Ms. Robertson, any comment? Don't have to, just want to give the opportunity. Yes, Mr. Addison. Thank you, Council President. Um, not sure how much more I can say after what Councilman <laughs> Jones just shared, which I appreciate because um, I share some of those sentiments myself. Um, I was elected along with the eight of you, eight other of you, to do a job. Um, this has been a complicated discussion over the past 10 months. I, if, I, if I think you might recall, we discussed this exact conflict that Councilwoman Larson's bringing up about how the relationship between this advisory commission would work with our proceedings of this project. And they weren't defined, and I think that's part of the challenge we're going to be facing is you bring up a great question, what do we do? Um, I know that I have a job to do, and I'm going to do that to the best of my ability. But I also know that these work sessions are where I can bring those objections, those questions, from my constituents, from my own evaluation and analysis, to a body in this room to publicly discuss, debate, and find solutions for. And that's the point of these working sessions. Um, I know that we have a, um, one of the members of the commission in attendance, and I hope that they will continue to be able to be flexible in their schedule to work with us to become here for as we discuss options, amendments, changes, contemplating these discussions about the many points before us in this really complicated project to make sure that we are doing it together. Um, I also know that they're open to communicate to us however they need to as through the body and I hope that we can have open dialogue of communication so it's not just a one and done. I think the revisions of conversation through this process is what we're trying to do together. Um, they might bring up evaluation questions that we might miss and vice versa. That's the point of this. So for me, um, I don't want to th these meetings to be seen as going in the face of the commission or going in the face of our third party evaluation or the work previously done to get the project where it is before us. We have a job to discuss this publicly. People have been waiting for this to happen publicly. They've been calling it a behind closed doors deal because it had to be until negotiated all the terms to be brought for us as they are now. It is no longer private. It is a very public project that we have our duty to do, our job as elected to evaluate. And I think we've put together a lot of good resources to do that with the commission, the evaluation of the third party, if we can get that approved with the vendor, but also our job to discuss this as a body. And so for me, 
um, I'm willing to put forth the effort to take the sacrifice in my own personal work schedule to make these meetings as functional and as productive as possible as we discuss what all of this project can mean for the future of our city. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, can we make it work? And if not, will we get there together as a group? And that's my discussion and my focus on these working sessions. So I, I look forward to having this discussion. I know there's a lot of time getting us to this moment, but let's get to work. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Robertson. Thank you, Madam President. Um, I agree to this. This is a huge, huge, huge development. And um, a lot of work has been put in this uh, to get us to where we are at the present time. I agree to us meeting on uh, the days of Mondays that we have a council meeting and agreed to us having this extra time in advance of our regular meetings so that we could um, invest the necessary time to break this development down into manageable components and focus in on those. And this is the process that we've used in reviewing the budget it feels like the budget. I think this book is a little bit heavier than my budget book, but um, I do think that uh, a method of process of how we make decisions is something that we agree on. Uh, we agreed to have these meetings prior to our regular council meetings on Mondays. Uh, five votes of council members uh, supported this, and, and we're proceeding with doing that. I do think it's important that we have more discussion on how we are going to interface with the other components that are in this process. When we do the budget review, we have a deadline that we must come to a decision. And I think the same needs to be established with this development deal. Um, we must, I think it would be wise for us to have a deadline that we are targeting, whether we make it or not, uh, that we at least push forward to try to come to a final vote on this development. And in order to accomplish that, I think it's important that we work with the independent consultant that we will hire, as well as with the commission that has been established and that we are all working on that same deadline and that we have components that we are working toward in sequence. So if we're working on financing uh, to get this thing started well, then let's have a agreement with the advisory board as well as with our consultant that these are the faces that we're working on and these are the sequential order that we're working together on. Um, I think by doing that, we will have an opportunity to have not only our consultant but also the advisory board to come to a meeting in the process to present what their findings are and where they are and where their recommendations are as we go through the sequence and we have sequential pieces that we have some sense of consensus on. That doesn't mean that that has determined the vote, as we do with the budget process. Without that and without a timeline that we are working toward, I don't know that we will force ourselves 
to maybe even have to meet more often than every Monday. Occasionally with the budget, we have to come in for another special meeting because we have asked for more information and we haven't gotten the answers to that. But in order to meet our timeline, it may mean we have to come in on a Thursday or Friday as well. Um, I would like to, for us as a council to take uh, these things in consideration as a body and have an open discussion on that so that the community also knows what timeline we are working on to try to get through this process. I think also it's important that council members provide to um, uh, our staff uh, meetings that we are having in our districts uh, so that they can also be shared and publicized and we know if someone wants to come to your meeting, uh, Mr. Jones or Mr. Loss, then we should be able to uh, encourage people to do that. Uh, and that is a part of the planning process so that at the end of the day, the media, the residents, stakeholders of the city of Richmond will have a fully transparent schedule of everything that is being proposed and every meeting that is being scheduled so that everybody knows the level and the depth of transparency that has been taken from multiple means to make this happen. And I would just ask, uh, Madam President, uh, that we take the time, and when you suggest that is the appropriate time to do so, to have such a discussion so we do have a action plan of how we're want to get to the end of the means of what we're trying to accomplish. Thank you, Ms. Robertson. Ms. Larson, you had questions before, but do you have any additional comment? Are you good? Okay. And so um, I want to thank everyone for the comments. Uh, the magnitude of this project does not leave us with either or. It leaves us with all and in terms of strategies to uh, enable to fully vet this project from the work sessions to the commission, to the independent study, to the district meetings and citizen input, all of those are uh, not niceties. They are critical to our decisioning. And uh, the draft of the uh, work sessions that um, have been prepared thus far, which will be shared, uh, are in direct response to the questions that have come up in discussion thus far. Uh, and uh, are responsive to those. And again, the last four sessions are to be further defined based on any additional uh, questions that council might have. And to your point, Ms. Robertson, pretty much try to work uh, uh, as close to we, as we could with 90 days, maybe a little off, but um, I agree. We uh, will have a further uh, defined discussion about um, time frame and the rest of the sessions and how the parts come together. But I think what should not be missed is that this body wants to fully, fully vet this project and to have opportunity for information to come through a variety of sources. So with that, Madam Chief of Staff, if you would get us underway with the first present. Uh, yes, our first presentation will be given by Leonard Sledge, the Director of Economic uh, Development. 
Welcome, Mr. Sledge. Thank you. Thank you, Madam President. And good morning, and also good morning to the distinguished members of Richmond City Council. My name is Leonard Sledge, and I have the privilege of serving as the Director of Economic Development for the City of Richmond. On behalf of the administration, thank you all very much for allowing us the opportunity to come in today to give an overview of the Navy Hill project. Uh, my role in today's presentation will be to briefly speak to how we got to this point, and then I will ask Mr. Michael Hallmark, uh, who is a part of the Navy Hill development team, to come and to walk council through the project uh, that has been submitted to you for review on August the 5th. So why are we redeveloping the city center? In 2009, the city of Richmond undertook a master plan for its downtown area, a master plan that involved a significant amount of citizen input and engagement. And as a result of the master plan, particularly focusing on our city center, there were three things that were highlighted that are really germane to the proposed Navy Hill project. The master plan in 2009 speaks to reopening Clay Street and reviving Court Inn, integrating the Richmond Coliseum into a walkable urban fabric, and improving connections between the convention center and its environs. And more recently in 2017, with the Pulse Corridor master plan, it also spoke to development that should happen to fully realize, rather to give Richmond the opportunity to fully realize economic development and development to continue to propel our city forward. It talked about gaps in vibrant uses between the Arts District and the government center stations and, and filling those gaps, areas where we have vacant and underutilized pieces of property for mixed-use development so that we can fully realize the potential of the convention center, or rather, more realize the convention center's potential, and also speaking to the transformation of Monroe Ward and other surrounding areas. I think it's also important to note that our partners in the Commonwealth of Virginia, specifically in the city of Richmond, have master plans that they have created. They have gone through the visioning process, and they are actually implementing their master plans. If we look simply right across the street from City Hall at Capitol Square, we see the new General Assembly building under construction, and also Virginia Commonwealth University with the medical school. They have two cranes up in downtown Richmond and are soon to be third with the construction of the expansion of the Children's Hospital. There are three cranes doing vertical construction in downtown Richmond, and while we appreciate the presence of both the Commonwealth Virginia and Virginia Commonwealth University, from a real estate standpoint, as we will see later on in the presentation, while the development adds to our economic fabric in terms of our general fund revenue from real estate taxes generated, they do not help us in terms of supplying core services to our citizens in the city. I also think it's important as it relates to the master plan development by the Commonwealth of Virginia and VCU and the work that is going on is to note the connectivity, the importance of the connectivity between their respective campuses and everything else that is in Richmond. So where is Navy Hill? Navy Hill is in our city center, north of Broad Street, south of I-95, bounded by the VCU Medical Center, the Virginia Biotech Park. Across the street is the state capitol complex, a short walk to Monroe Ward, and our central business district, as well as historic Shaco. And why do we need this, pro this project well, quite honestly, if you look at the images on the screen, this is what our city center looks like today. 
a functionally obsolete 1970s era Richmond Coliseum, a number of surface parking lots that do not have the highest and best use on them in terms of economic opportunity for our city, and also, quite honestly, because the planning studies, the aforementioned studies approved by Richmond City Council and the city of Richmond affirms the need for a project that will redevelop and reshape the city center. And so, through the process over the past couple of years, the city issued a request for proposals, and the Navy Hill team responded to the request for proposals, and they have submitted what we believe is a transformational mixed-use development of our city center. Over the past 17 months, the city administration has been engaged, was engaged, rather, in negotiations with Navy Hill to get the absolute best deal and agreement possible for the city of Richmond. Along the way, the city attorney's office has been a part of the conversation and dialogue and the negotiation process. You have in front of you the documents uh, that were introduced on August the 5th, and again, we are glad to continue to talk about the project and to answer all questions, whether it be here in council chamber, through the committee, through the community meetings, the district meetings that we have been a part of, we're ready to answer the questions that you have. So how does this all work and get paid for? The city and Navy Hill enter into a development agreement, cooperation agreement, and purchase and sale agreement. The Navy Hill District Corporation pays the city $15.8 million for all of the properties that it wants to own and develop using private funding. It's important to note that those funds are placed and held in escrow until the development is ready to happen on those respective pieces of property. The Richmond Coliseum and Blues Armory properties are transferred to Richmond's Economic Development Authority, the Navy Hill District Corporation undertakes $900 million in contemporaneous development, contemporaneous construction uh, with alongside the arena, or rather, as that $900 million is underway in development, the arena is under development as well. The Richmond Economic Development Authority then enters into a ground lease with Navy Hill for the arena, which would be a 30-year lease, and the Blues Armory, a 65-year lease. The Richmond Economic Development Authority will issue non-recourse revenue bonds that have no moral or general obligations by the city of Richmond. And I think that is very important uh, as we have the conversation. The non-recourse nature of the bonds uh, used to finance the arena simply means that for whatever reason, if there is a shortfall in the revenue, that the developer cannot rely on the general fund or the moral obligation of the city to make up any gaps or differences in that. The project does not create any new special tax assessments or tax districts for Richmond citizens and property owners. How does this all work and get paid for? The arena is the only part of the project that is financed with bond proceeds. The sources of funding to repay the $350 million bond debt service for the arena are incremental new real estate tax from the incremental financing area defined in the agreement. In other words, in the, in the property boundaries, and we will see it shortly, an existing piece of real estate that is there, only the incremental new real estate tax would go towards paying the financing or the repayment of the bond debt. In other words, if a person has a property tax, a property tax bill of $1,000, and for whatever reason, either through reassessment or an increase in the tax rate by Richmond City Council, that $1,000 tax bill becomes $1,100. Only the new $100 will go towards paying the debt on the arena. 
the real estate tax from the new Navy Hill developments defined in the agreement, and that would be all of the new vertical construction specifically that will be undertaken by the Navy Hill team. New sales tax from the Navy Hill developments defined in the agreement. If there's a retail operation already existing or even new in the increment area, the sales tax generated from it will go towards the general fund. If there's new sales tax generated as a result of the new construction defined in the development agreement, those sales tax revenues would go towards repaying of the debt. And the same holds true for meals tax, with the exception of the 1.5% that's already been dedicated and purpose for Richmond City Schools. New BPOL tax or business professional and occupational license tax from the Navy Hill developments defined in the, in the agreement go towards paying the debt service. Also, new parking revenue from the incremental financing area, tax revenue and sponsorships generated by the arena, and the tax revenue generated by the Blues Armory. And every time I talk about the arena, I, I think about 1996, which was the last time the NCAA tournament was played in the city of Richmond, and that's near and dear to my heart because a gentleman who I played actually high school football with put on a Georgetown Hoyas basketball jersey for the last time, Allen Iverson. And since then, we've not had any NCAA tournaments in the city. Uh, Hard-pressed to think about any major tournament in, a, in an arena. And we think that the arena being one of the anchors to this development will again lead to transformational growth in our city and also help to give additional reasons for people to come and enjoy themselves in the city of Richmond. The GIS map that is on the screen shows our downtown area. Outlined in red, everything inside of the red area is the incremental financing area boundary. Everything in white to note are taxable or are non-taxable properties, excuse me, tax-exempt properties in our downtown area. Specifically inside of the incremental financing area boundary, the tax-exempt parcels assess have an assessed value, rather, of approximately $1.45 billion. Immediately to the east of that area, there is an additional $1.5 billion of, of assessed real estate that is tax-exempt. In total, approximately $3 billion in our downtown area of tax-exempt real estate. This is funding that we are not able to realize in our general fund from real estate taxes. Conversely, in green, you see taxable parcels that have an assessed value of approximately $2.1 billion. If you take out properties that have some sort or some level of real estate tax abatement, uh, it lowers the value to approximately $1.9 billion. And that $1.9 billion has an effective impact on our general fund of about $23 million. That $23 million, the way this development has been, has been structured, continues to go to the general fund. It's only the incremental new amount of real estate tax that goes toward paying the bond financing. And so a simple animation to zoom in on the development blocks in the Navy Hill area. And what we will see is what the area currently looks like in 2019 from a taxable and non-taxable standpoint. Again, the red being the border or the outline of the incremental financing area, the white being the non-taxable parcels, and the green being the taxable parcels. We fully believe that with the implementation of this project, and from 2019 to 2026, 
we will see new development in the city of Richmond, which turns non-tax producing parcels, non-revenue producing parcels into highly producing parcels of revenue for the city of Richmond. Why is this project good for all Richmonders? Quite honestly, it allows us the opportunity to leverage $1.3 billion in private investment. It allows us to use $1.3 billion of other people's funding to see economic growth in the city. It creates 12,500 jobs during the construction phase, and that's 12,500 jobs that are direct, indirect, and induced, as well as over 9,000 jobs, permanent jobs, at the completion of the project, direct, indirect, and induced. And it's also important to note that those are jobs, entry-level jobs, all the way through professional, managerial types of jobs that come as a result of the project. The project creates over 2,500, or rather 2,500 new mixed-income residential units, with 280 of those units being affordable, and $10 million in philanthropic giving to fund 200 more affordable units. And this is critically important, not only because we are all consciously working to create more affordable housing opportunities in the city of Richmond, but the way this project is structured, not only will it create affordable leasing opportunities, it will create affordable home ownership opportunities as well. The project creates over $300 million in minority business participation opportunities. Last year alone, the city of Richmond had approximately $30 million, and so by a factor of 10, uh, for this project, again, opportunities for minority business participation. Provides for a new GRTC bus transit center in the city of Richmond. Uh, having been in the city of Richmond only three months and having worked on this project, I kept telling myself I need to go and see the new, the GRTC, the current GRTC transit center, not realizing that I had already driven by it several times already. People waiting outside in front of the public safety building in the elements waiting to catch a bus. And this project turns the tide on that and creates an opportunity for Richmonders to wait for a bus in a covered area, out of the elements, have the opportunity to use the restroom if need be, buy a bottle of water if need be, again, as they're going from work to home, home to work, or anywhere else in the city. The project provides a state-of-the-art arena that will be the largest in the Commonwealth of Virginia at 17,500 seats renovates the historic Blues Armory as a new entertainment and event space. Uh, several weeks ago, we held a media tour in the Blues Armory, and if there are any fans of apocalyptic zombie genre movies and TV shows, the Blues Armory is camera ready for The Walking Dead. And that is not an understatement. The developer is proposing using private funds to renovate and repurpose the 60,000 square feet area to be a market for food, helping to eliminate the food desert challenges in downtown Richmond, an entertainment space, but also a ballroom for the new 500-plus room convention-quality hotel that will come. And in my experience as an economic developer, knowing that a developer is not coming in and asking for any public subsidy to build a convention-quality, full-service hotel is monumental. The project improves the walkability by recreating East Clay Street and 6th Street, I think it's also important to note that the developer, through, this, through the agreement, will be paying for the public infrastructure using private funds. So there's not a need for the CIP to pay for capital projects on public infrastructure or our general fund for this project. And also the project helps to attract and retain talent in the city of Richmond. As a part of the group of ordinances and resolutions put in front of you, 
We believe, and based on the estimates provided to us, the analysis from our financial advisors and the independent study, that this project will generate over $1 billion of surplus revenues over a 30-year period. It's important to note that every year during the repayment of the bonds for the arena, any surplus is split 50-50, with 50% of the surplus revenues going to pay off the, bond, the debt on the arena faster, akin to someone making an extra car payment or an extra mortgage payment on their house. And then the other half goes towards the city general fund. By resolution, it is recommended, it is being asked, that the funds be appropriated, the surplus funds to the city of Richmond be appropriated in a matter that provides 50% to Richmond City Schools. We project that that will create over a half billion dollars of new revenue to Richmond City Schools over the 30-year period. 34% for core services, police, fire. Uh, again, I keep hearing about opportunities for us to improve the quality of life and the level of service for Richmonders. 15% for housing and homeless services. Again, more funds to help create affordable housing opportunities in the city. And also 1% for the arts, history, and culture. And so, Madam President and members of City Council, again, the city... We had a master planning process, the downtown master plan in 2009, the Pulse Corridor study in 2017. Our neighbors and partners around us have master planned their campuses as well, and they're moving forward with development. We have a unique opportunity as a city to take underutilized and underperforming city assets in the core of our city and get them into revenue producing and to a revenue producing mode that, hel that helps to propel Richmond forward not only from an economic development standpoint, but also in a manner that Richmonders can be proud of by providing core services, more funding for education, more funding for affordable housing, and more funding for the arts, history, and culture. And so with that, I'd like to ask Mr. Michael Hallmark, who is a part of the Navy Hill development team, to come forward. And Mr. Hallmark will walk you through uh, the development that has been uh, envisioned and that has been negotiated for the city of Richmond. Thank you, Leonard. Um, Madam President and members of the council, my name is Michael Hallmark. Um, as Leonard said, I'm a, a member of the Navy Hill team. Um, I wanted to uh, start uh, acknowledging the complexity of the project. Um, it has a lot of component parts to it, but those component parts um, yield a lot of benefits to it. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's not just a housing project. It's not just a transit center uh, replacement project. It's not an, just an arena project. It's, it's many, many different things, and it's because of those many, many different things that the synergies make the project work, um, any one of which wouldn't, wouldn't be enough to, um, uh, to, to do the kinds of things that we, we hope will happen. Um, I wanted to first start with um, this slide. This represents kind of the organizational chart for, for uh, Navy Hill. Um, I, I represent... Um, one of the boxes in there, along with my development partners, Capital City Partners. But the important part of this slide, really, for us, has been the Navy Hill Foundation. 
it is, it is made up of, of some very uh, uh, important voices in this community. Um, I've been astounded by uh, the uh, activity, participation of, of many of these board members who uh, are willing, without pay, without participation, to advance this project. And I was asked, uh, we, we made a presentation recently to the Planning Commission, and one of the commissioners asked um, uh, how this project differs from others like this that I participated in. And I would say the first thing that struck me was the willingness of uh, the corporate community, the business community, civic leaders to, to step in and, and, and be counted on. Um, and that's been very, very impressive, and it's an unusual, it's an unusual aspect of the project. Capital City Partners is um, an entity made up specifically for this project. Um, we have um, a combination of firms involved in it. Uh, my development partner, Susan Eastridge, is here today. She's going to speak uh, some to the financing of the project. Um, my individual expertise, this is Susan's uh, broad bio. She's been a uh, mixed-use developer for the last 30 years. Uh, over 15 million square feet developed and uh, thousands of hotel keys developed. My expertise has been um, over the last three decades in the development of arenas and arena districts. So I will be speaking to that. Um, I know many of you have seen some of this presentation before and I want to bring some new information to you about um, other cities uh, where they've had to uh, tackle these same kinds of issues. Uh, but this is not the first time I've been involved in a project like this. It's not my 10th. It's not even my 20th. So I've, this is something that I feel very comfortable in talking to. So if you have questions, um, I'd be ready to, to answer uh, your questions specifically on those kinds of things. Our mission then from the outset, is, as Mr. Sledge uh, pointed out, was that we wanted to create a solution to replace the Coliseum that does not encumber the city's financial resources. Um, other than the uh, civic and corporate leadership who have adopted this as an important project to get done, the other remarkable thing about this development is the amount of downtown land that is not producing anything for the city at the moment. Uh, that's very unusual. So many of these kinds of, of anchored, uh, arena anchored projects um, get put together by assembling some private land along with public land. Uh, we don't have any private land uh, assembling uh, that have to happen here, so that's a very important thing. Uh, no general or moral obligation to the city. This was, this was never an issue for us. This is how we brought, came, came to this project, was to solve this through private development resources. Um, a lot of the properties that we're talking about don't even exist now. So we're, you'll see here shortly, and Jennifer Mullen will also talk to this matter, of having to organize bits and pieces of publicly owned uh, properties to actually create a developable parcel. Um, the restoration of neglected historic buildings, the Booz Armory and the Richmond Garage are um, very, very important, I think, to the, uh, the integrity of the city to, to get those back into production. Um, and then uh, paramount is to bring new investment dollars to the city uh, and return new tax revenues. One of, um, I also want to talk to some of the comments that we're hearing. So as, as uh, Council Member Jones mentioned and others have mentioned, we've been to some of your districts, we've taken questions, and so I'm interspersing some commentaries 
here uh, that we're getting from some of our uh, public encounters. Um, one of those is the issue of you know, displacing people. So does this project displace residents? Does it displace business? Um, this, is the, this is the fact, uh, as Leonard uh, Sledge mentioned earlier, that this area uh, currently has only one uh, commercial uh, use right now. That's the Doorways Project. Nobody lives here in this area. They haven't for many, many decades, and that's one of the aspects of the, of the city that we'd like to change. Um, well, what, took, uh, what took enormous amounts of energy to, to break, if you will, in terms of breaking the, civic, this, the city's uh, uh, street grids and those kinds of things takes an equal amount of energy to fix. So one of the, uh, one of the questions that, um, uh, and I want to see if this works better here. I'm going to forego the automatic one for this one. Um, one of the things you notice when you go back through the, the history of these, these aerials have started uh, this is in 2003, you'll see that while some other things have changed around these development parcels, these sites are, are not changing. They are chronically fixed uh, in a specific mode, not generating uh, revenues. Uh, as the arena, uh, as the Coliseum gets older and older and less financially viable, uh, nothing changes. So you'll see um, biotech advancing. The orange bits represent those projects that are, that are uh, developed in a, any particular year, and the blue bits represent generally parking lots. And uh, one of the things that uh, we're going to look at a few other cities, when you see lots and lots of surface parking lots in downtowns unchanged for decades, it generally means that something has stagnated. Uh, so that's the opportunity here is to is to flip these properties um, into into use. So I wanted to spend a few minutes on what other cities are doing to solve for some of these kinds of issues. Now Richmond is generally of extraordinarily vibrant. I'm, I'm proud to now be a resident of Richmond. I've been here for a couple of years, but I've lived in other places and worked in many other cities. And there are segments of cities that experience core decline where businesses move out, they move to the suburbs, residents move to the suburbs for all kinds of different reasons. And the challenge for cities is to bring uh, folks back to downtown. And they do that in many places using arena-anchored uh, development. And I wanted to show a few examples of those. Um, uh, there are uh, four or five very good examples that show this to be an effective economic development approach uh, to, to certain kinds of cities. Um, there's some requirements to make it work. One is that there be a critical mass of, of real estate that's not currently on the tax rolls. We have that. Uh, requires a high level of cooperation between public and private leadership. We believe we have that and we're working on that. Uh, it requires a single coherent master plan. Uh, we're going to talk about the issue of um, uh, organic development here in a moment. Uh, uh, but we believe that there needs to be a coherent master plan to, to solve for this issue. Um, and it also requires that there be a destination attractor as the, as the anchor for the project. So very quickly, I want to run through four cities uh, that have gone through this same exercise. Uh, probably the, the father of, or father and mother, I guess, of this notion of the uh, arena anchored district plan was in Columbus. Uh, Columbus had a large tract of publicly owned land. This happened to be their penitentiary. Uh, 
that uh, trapezoidal piece of land just on the outskirts of downtown, and the community couldn't figure out what to do with it. Uh, nationwide uh, insurance came along and said, we'd like to uh, develop this with an arena-based plan, and uh, the city would get to enjoy uh, the, the tax benefits from these properties that, that show up. Uh, the master plan got developed uh, and in over a relatively short number of years. Um, the plan was executed. Um, it started out as a 75-acre master plan. Uh, it worked so well that it expanded to 175 acres and included waterfront developments as well. Uh, this is now you know, an important part of, of the city of Columbus's identity. I think some of you uh, may be visiting this uh, uh, in upcoming trips as part of a chamber trip. Uh, I would encourage you to, 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 to seek out development directors in Columbus to talk to them about this process. Uh, this was Columbus in 1995 with its chronically stagnant publicly owned land and then today uh, with properties generating uh, new tax revenues. Los Angeles is obviously a much larger city. Um, it's downtown, just south of, of uh, uh, just south of the downtown core and north of the freeways. It's a very, very similar tract of land. Uh, next to the convention center uh, was not advancing. Uh, there was significant blight in that portion of downtown Los Angeles. Surface parking lots abounded. Uh, there was uh, other communities. There's something like 56 or 57 cities within Los Angeles County. And the city of Los Angeles was losing uh, corporate tourism and, and prestige to these other communities. And it needed to restore downtown as an exciting place to live. Uh, these blue uh, sections represent, again, uh, older buildings that would be brought down. And uh, those property owners found it was more valuable to park cars there than to try to find tenants in outdated uh, office buildings. And that's what happened. Um, I was brought into this project as the architect for the arena. Uh, Staples Center then uh, spawned um, an LA Live district master plan. Um, and while it was not in itself a, an enormously large development in terms of the city footprint, uh, the areas that you see to the right there um, started to develop as well. So there was a significant halo effect. And within a few years of Staples Center, uh, there were 30,000 new downtown residential units that were spawned as a direct result of, of the Staples Center project, uh, and also because there was a coherent master plan that made part of it. So you, you, you would rightly argue, well, we're not Los Angeles. Uh, we're going to look at a couple of other cities that are more of a scale to Richmond, uh, Kansas City, and then Allentown, Pennsylvania. Uh, Kansas City, very similar story to Los Angeles. Uh, Families were moving out of downtown over decades, going across the state line into Kansas, uh, into the suburban school systems. There was a loss of revenue as a result of that. Uh, surface parking lots started to appear as buildings started uh, being uh, torn down. The city decided to change course, created uh, an RFP process, uh, created an, uh, an arena anchored development project, which you see here, Sprint Center and uh, the Power and Light District. Um, and you can see these are, these are developing simultaneously. So this is not a, a necessarily a linear process. This is a, a simultaneous process of development. We're gonna talk about Sprint Center a little bit more when we talk about specific arena economics, but 
Uh, this is the transformation that happened in, in downtown Kansas City, and it's not hard to imagine that this is now the place to live. This is where people want to be, and the economics of downtown urban Kansas City have been inalterably changed for, for generations to come. And then Allentown is um, about 125, 130,000 people, so smaller than Richmond. Um, uh, their problems were um, the kinds of problems that the Rust Belt encountered during the recession. Industry moving out, uh, blight started, uh, jobs were being lost, revenues were being lost, and more importantly, generations were being lost. People would who went to high school in Allentown would, would go off to college and they would, they would not come home again. Uh, they'd find jobs somewhere else. Uh, the city decided to take action, created a, a 128-acre uh, neighborhood improvement zone, which is essentially a TIF district, um, and the changes started to happen uh, immediately. The new arena went into place, and again, uh, this is not, if you build it, they will come. This is part of a concerted master plan effort. Parking lots got, got turned into building sites, and uh, the PPL Center has opened. Uh, these are a few before and after pictures of Allentown, just in those few years that these transformations were happening. Like Richmond, Allentown has some nice historic architectural assets within the city. So those also were able to be improved, uh, but for the vast majority of it, it was surface lots and vacant lots transforming. But again, there had to be a catalyst to do it. This is not, this is not normal kind of uh, uh, organic growth in cities. There has to be a reason for it to happen. There are economists who strongly support this view, and I, I would encourage you to, and we would be happy to, to help introduce you to them. Uh, Mark Rosentraub is a professor at the University of Michigan, uh, has done work on uh, uh, urban development using uh, arena and sports anchor development. Um, and so he asked these questions. Um, he's, he wrote a book about uh, two, two decades ago uh, about what bad business it was for cities to enter into packs with professional team owners, uh, called it a losing proposition for cities. He has the opposite view, though, of uh, arena and sports anchored uh, development projects that include um, a master plan, that include uh, public-private participation without uh, underwriting a team owner. One of the questions we get asked from time to time at our uh, district workshops is could this area evolve organically? What if we did nothing? You know, would this area somehow over time, given the success of other component parts within the city, would it develop on its own? Um, the answer is no. And the reason is that when we look at maybe our, our most recently famous example of organic growth, uh, we think of Scott's Edition. Well, Scott's Edition 25 years ago uh, already had six miles of infrastructure, six miles of streets. It had, it, it had definable intact parcels. It had 200 plus buildings uh, that are uh, acquirable. Uh, uh, small business owners can acquire these buildings. They can turn them around into breweries. They can do all kinds of things. And some residential and mostly industrial uh, development uh, remains. 25 years later, it's very much the same story with, with more activity, more business activity. Great success story, but a very, very different kind of model than what we're talking about. 
Scott's Edition had infrastructure, Scott's Edition had normal streets, uh, Scott's Edition had an inventory of buildings. Uh, those things do not exist in Navy Hill at all. Um, infrastructure is required for new development to happen. It cannot uh, be a one-off, one-block-at-a-time approach. Um, this, this area uh, was dramatically altered uh, from the 50s on and certainly with, from the 70s on. Uh, and it is beyond the resources of one-off developers to affect that. The other thing that investors want to know before they'll invest in projects in areas like this is what's going to happen next door. So in the development world, we call that the known development environment. You don't want to buy a house in a neighborhood where you don't know what's going to happen next door. Is there going to be a, a factory built next door to my house? No, zoning, zoning protects you from that. So we don't know that here. So that's, that's why we're going through this zoning process. The other thing is we don't have developable parcels in Navy Hill right now. So uh, Jennifer Mullen is going to be up here in a moment to talk about that process. So we are actually uh, reorganizing the uh, publicly owned land into parcels that can actually be developed into the kind of city that we want, a walkable city. Um, and um, this then shows uh, a little bit of that process. Um, she'll, she'll talk a little bit about um, how we're you know, reconfiguring these streets, we're reconfiguring some of the uh, ancillary strips of land so that we can actually produce buildings on it. Um, other comments that we're hearing is, uh, is concerns that new restaurant uses would cannibalize existing businesses. There was a, a recent article on that, that topic uh, that was published. Uh, or that downtown has office vacancy now that maybe we don't need more office space. Or as we talked before, Navy Hill will you know, will displace existing businesses and residents. So a few, a few uh, diagrams to cover that topic. Uh, this represents um, the restaurants in uh, downtown Richmond today. And this, this information uh, we acquired from uh, Venture Richmond. Um, so each, each orange dot here represents a restaurant in downtown. Venture Richmond says there's about 185 restaurants in downtown Richmond today. Um, this is Navy Hill, and so you can see this is roughly a, a, a quarter of the identifiable downtown uh, on this side of Belvedere uh, and between the freeways. Um, but there aren't, uh, there aren't the restaurants that you see elsewhere. Uh, north of Marshall, there's essentially one, and it's a, a nice carriage shop sandwich uh, store at the, at the Valentine Museum. Plenty of room uh, with a proper uh, development for new restaurant growth. Uh, 15,000 folks uh, between biotech and the health systems campus go to their internal cafeterias um, to, you know, to eat now. Uh, plenty of room for growth there. Class A office is another uh, conversation that we've had. You know, we have some vacancy for Class A office. It is not at all the kind of vacancy or the kind of pipeline that corporations are seeking when they, when they want to relocate to cities. Uh, this represents basically all of the Class A office, uh, I would say newer Class A office inventory in downtown. Um, this represents those properties that have about 50,000 square feet of vacancy, and this changes from time to time, so this is approximate. Um, 100,000 square foot vacancies were down to a couple of properties over 200,000, which would be a number that a, a relocation uh, you know, would require, might require, there are none. Um, 
we're working with uh, a number of brokers on this matter, and uh, we were supplied uh, these quotes from CoStar. Um, while the office fundamentals are strong, uh, there is, in fact, um, a, a need for um, certain new projects to be in the pipeline. There are very few large blocks of space uh, for lease are available, and many of these are antiquated and low-end. Um, and this is this may be hurting the long-term potential for Richmond's office market and could act as a potential deterrent for employers looking to relocate back office operations. And, and these, um, the supply is constrained. Um, employers generally, and you know this, I, I know that Mr. Sledge knows this very well from an economic development perspective, to attract the emerging labor force uh, to come to Richmond and to keep the emerging labor force in Richmond uh, we need to develop cities that uh, attract uh, uh, workers, that attract uh, the kind of employees that these kind of companies are looking for, and the Navy Hill Project does that. Um, residential. Um, this is the inventory, roughly, of, of residential properties in these four quadrants, and Navy Hill has none. So again, a quarter of the downtown real estate uh, isn't serving uh, Retail, it isn't serving residential, and it isn't serving Class A commercial office space. Another question we've been asked from time to time was, well, what's, what's really wrong with the Coliseum? It looks okay to me, uh, or to whoever's asking the question. Um, and so we want to talk a little bit about the, the business of arenas. Um, we want to compare the Coliseum, not just to a new Richmond arena, but to other arenas in America. Um, the last uh, year where we had a full year of attendance uh, was 2018. Uh, we had 73 events in the Coliseum. Um, a normal projection, and we'll compare this to some other arenas, not just the one we're projecting. Uh, the, the normal attendance for an arena that's fully healthy and fully functioning would be about that number, 121, without any sports tenants. Uh, with sports tenants, we could expect uh, for, for our projection purposes, we've included a G League basketball team and a, uh, a hockey team, either the uh, East Coast or the American Hockey League, a minor league hockey team. Uh, so you can see the attendance numbers there. Um, the, the full number of attendees over the year uh, in, at the Richmond Coliseum uh, in 2018 was, was 321,000. Uh, the, the same number projected in the new arena without sports teams would be that number. Uh, with sports teams, uh, it would be 683,000. Box office sales changes dramatically because with a larger arena, we're able to have a, a broader flexibility of the kinds of shows we would attract. So these are, these are projections that, that demonstrate the dif difference between uh, the old Coliseum and a new arena. And there's, a, there's another category here that's not just about seat count, and that is what do we have to offer in terms of premium inventory to the corporate marketplace? And we really have nothing to offer uh, the corporate marketplace of the Coliseum. Um, the, the normal suite inventory that we would have at the new arena would be uh, 28 new modern suites on its own level. In addition to that, 34 club suites. But the real difference here is on the, the difference in, in income. So um, we, even if all of the suites at the Coliseum had been sold, which they never were, um, we would, we'd, the only 
potential maximum we could ever hope for would be $270,000. Uh, the new arena inventory would be $2.8 million, and that's with or without a sports tenant because these suites um, you know, can be sold either way. Um, this is where the story really starts to become important to you all, and that is that uh, the arena had been operating at a loss, which you all know. I've been carried by the city, um, which is one of the reasons it was, it was shut down. It's a little bit cheaper to mothball it. It's not free, but it doesn't lose a half a million to a million dollars annually. The difference here in terms of sports tenants versus no sports tenants is very small. And so when we're asked the question is, do we really need uh, or can we afford to do an arena without tenants? The answer is yes. Most of that revenue that you get from sports tenants goes to the tenants themselves, goes to the teams themselves, because they need that operating revenue for their own, their own, their own teams. I want to talk a little bit about uh, one of the myths that we were battling early was that somehow this arena would have to function at astronomically aggressive levels to work, and that's simply not true. Um, I wanted to put this in the spectrum of arenas across America, uh, starting with the largest arenas and working our way down to our current Coliseum. In large cities where there are both uh, NBA and NHL teams, um, uh, it, it's, a, it, it's, it's easily uh, the norm that two million to three million people would attend that. These arenas are largely financed by the, the team owners themselves, which has been the case for all of the, all of the examples that we're showing here. I've, I've been an architect on many of these buildings myself. Um, the next tier um, uh, uh, become more complicated. Uh, they don't always, they can't always be afforded strictly by the team owner. But those communities have decided it's important to have uh, those kinds of uh, amenities within their city. So there have been public-private development cooperations worked out. In all cases, private operations for these buildings. This is the Phoenix Suns Arena in Phoenix, Arizona. It has one NBA tenant. And that attendance is generally between 1 million and about 1.9 to 2 million. Uh, and then we're in a category where Richmond would, would reside. Um, the, the king of the no-tenant uh, public arena um, is the Sprint Center in Kansas City right now. It draws a million people um, annually. It was uh, publicly developed uh, and uh, privately run. There was a substantial investment on the private side and within the arena. Uh, it generally draws about a million people annually. Um, and there are many examples of arenas in this category. Uh, you see this, the, uh, to the side of the name of the facility, you see the, uh, the actual capacity of the arena. Um, and these are, these are very, you know, traditional cities. There's nothing extraordinary about Grand Rapids or Tulsa. Uh, this is where a new Richmond arena would reside on that list about 683,000, and that includes two minor league tenants. Uh, without the tenants, we're at about 509,000. Uh, so you can see from this that there's nothing extraordinary here. This is a very, very achievable, very conservative projection about how this arena would function. It's the other things that it does for the community that are, are the important part. Um, the Coliseum without tenants, as we said before, uh, drew about 320,000. So what's wrong with the Coliseum? Uh, it's, it is functionally obsolete. Um, it, it can no longer bring the shows. So it didn't close just because it was old. It closed because touring shows were skipping us and going to other places. 
Uh, we didn't quite have enough seats. We didn't have a quite not, we didn't quite have enough amenity. There was no ability to bring in corporate dollars through sponsorships or through uh, through uh, premium seating. Uh, it's called the Richmond Coliseum because it couldn't be called a corporate name. There was no naming rights opportunity for it as well. There had been no CapEx program for many years. As things started to deteriorate, they, they had to be let go, and um, that, that finally caught up with the building. It will cost uh, between seven and eight million dollars, <coughs> excuse me, um, to demolish the building and fill it in and make it available to do something else. On top of that, an extra two million dollars would have to come, be come up, <coughs> excuse me, would, uh, would have to be raised to, uh, de for debt defeasance on the building. Um, we, we've already talked about this particular issue is um, uh, there are no sports teams necessarily identified or proposed, but doesn't the arena need that? And as we talked about, arena revenues for sports events generally go to the teams, and we want to do that. We're very interested in bringing G League basketball and minor league hockey to Richmond, but it's because of the community benefits that we want to do that. It's not for the business of the building. We'd like to have kids grow up in Richmond following uh, basketball teams, following hockey league teams, and going to events. Um, one of the things I do personally is I write a check to uh, the, the WNBA team in Arizona, uh, which generally draws between two and 3,000 people in its very large arena, and they use the, the, the checks that I and other people like me write to bring, to bus kids in from communities to go to events that they wouldn't normally be able to afford to go to. Uh, that's very, very important is to create those kinds of relationships. So what does that mean for Richmond? So um, we have to then figure out a way to reintroduce a normalized grid to this, to this area. Uh, 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 organic development is impossible. There's no infrastructure for that to happen. There are no sites that are created. Uh, once we do that, many of you have seen the sequence uh, uh, of a mixed-use project. Now, the other thing I want to point out, while it sounds like a really large project, the fact is every one of these component parts is very normal. There are residential projects like this being built in Richmond right now. Uh, the, uh, the unusual part of this project is that they're happening in a coherent master plan way that takes the energy from each of the, the development parcels and, and brings them together. Street activation, uh, we already talked about um, the, the very difficult situation with Clay Street. Uh, in the future, we want to be able to walk from the convention center uh, all the way to the health systems campus and have something to do along the way. So this becomes a reactivated Clay Street. So we've been working very closely with your own planning department in creating a hierarchy of public space plazas, uh, parklets. Uh, we've been working with VCU. They have a, a new park on their master plan called McGuire Park. So there'd be a, a series of uh, a necklace of, of public space that becomes available. This is the current intersection of Fifth and Clay today. Uh, doesn't look like a downtown. Uh, this becomes a new intersection of Fifth and Clay under the Navy Hill plan. This is the, as, as Mr. Sledge discussed, this is the current GRTC um, transfer station. Uh, we've talked about, uh, with the GRTC folks, changing that term to transit center. 
uh, it makes it uh, a situation where all roads lead to the transit center, which is a nice way to describe it. Um, left to its own devices, the city could take this parcel uh, and develop uh, a transit center on it. That would be the only use it would have, which would not be a very smart use of the real estate itself. And so we've, we've talked about doing a development like this one, um, so that we have a modern 12-berth uh, uh, transit center that has developable parcels on top and uh, cutting, cutting holes in the, in the deck allows natural light to come in. That hole can be whatever we want it to be. It doesn't have to be quite that big. Um, but it, the idea of letting in fresh air and light uh, is very important to the, to the uh, commuters so that they get protection. They, they're able to go indoors and use vending machines and restrooms, which they can't do now. Um, and Ms. Uh, Ms. Mullins is going to talk a little bit about these reclaimed properties, but here's, here's um, a site that doesn't really have anything to be developed on at the moment, but by reorganizing the streets, reclaiming some of that land, we're able to do uh, projects like this one, wrapping the existing garage with apartments. Um, this is the uh, 6th Street uh, closure brought on by the uh, Crystal Palace next to the armory. We would remove that, uh, redevelop the plaza itself, and create uh, this kind of a connection to the armory. Another before and after. Um, we've been working with the, the local historic and heritage groups to uh, identify the, the components of the armory that are important uh, and the, the kinds of things that we would want to do to restore it. Uh, getting rid of the Crystal Palace obviously would be the top of the list. The most interesting elevation, and we, we experienced this when we were on the tour, our, our press tour, uh, the most interesting elevation is the one that's covered up right now, which is a shame. This then is uh, how the armory benefits uh, and uh, vice versa a new convention hotel. We would connect it at the second and third levels. Um, and the benefit to that would be uh, the ability to use those levels for uh, uh, convention-related activities. That would sit on top of an urban grocer, uh, about 16,000 square feet. So this would be of a size similar to the, the independent markets that you're familiar with um, in, in Richmond. Second level uh, music club, breakout meeting rooms, lounges that would be uh, activated during the daytime by the convention uh, center hotel and in the evening by uh, after hours activities. Uh, one of the other questions we were, we've been asked is, well, how does this affect uh, the other music venues in town? And so we've been spending time with, uh, with folks like Ron Stallings at the Hippodrome, who's a, an enthusiastic supporter of this development. Um, and the idea here would be to try to find some, some uh, relationships between these venues that lift everybody up. Uh, and we're working on that right now. And then the uh, upper level ballroom, it's very important to convention hotel that it has a space like this. I think in this case, um, you know, it's a wonderful opportunity to do double duty, a restoration of this beautiful space, the, the drill floor, uh, restoration of the ironwork very similar to the, to the train station, um, and then reactivating that as a 1,000-person as a ballroom. 
And then just a, a little bit on the arena itself, um, 17,500 seats, highly flexible. Um, as Mr. Sledge said, we'd like to attract uh, tournament play here. Uh, we will likely promote this as a potential G League site, um, but definitely for tournament play. Uh, we've, we've spoke to the NCAA and other, other uh, uh, division presidents about that notion. Um, they're all in it. Uh, the, the industry loves these kinds of new, highly modern, uh, solving all kinds of technical problems that old arenas don't have. They love these kinds of venues. Uh, the bulk of our uh, uh, business is in touring shows, uh, music shows, concerts, family shows, ice shows, and it'll be ideally organized for that. And the other, one of the other issues here is we don't see this as a standalone building like the Sprint Center, as beautiful as the Sprint Center is in Kansas City. We are wrapping this arena with other uses so that it's active on all the elevations. One of the problems with big buildings like this, including our own convention center here, is that there's not enough activity at the, at the ground plane. And we solved for that by having other uses that abut to it. We've been exploring the notion of a low resolution uh, digital art installation, working with uh, uh, corporate entities who would like to underwrite this idea. And a, a few animations here before I close. This then is the reopened 6th Street. The, uh, the units on the left, uh, Susan Eastridge, my, one of my development partners, is going to talk about uh, some of the housing uses. Um, we're not proposing just um, rental units, so there is some for sale units, and we see the affordability issue working there as well, uh, allowing uh, folks to buy into real estate and to build wealth that way. This then is the open space plan that, that uh, we mentioned earlier with all of the hierarchy and categories of open space. One of the things that uh, we're working uh, at is not just rooftop green space, but actual an agriculture program that would happen on the rooftop. Uh, we've been working with national experts on the soil mix that would be required for this that is uh, substantially less weight than what we normally find. Um, and then we want to quickly transfer this to you know, local, uh, local partners. Uh, we think it would be a tremendous uh, jobs program. Uh, we, we would grow edible plants there and those become a part of, here's, here's a rooftop plant of that. We have about two acres of, of potential rooftop farming. Uh, what, isn't, what isn't growing plants would be producing power and um, also would be you know, hospitality spaces. So that's it for me. Um, I'm going to invite up Jennifer Mullen to talk specifically about the ordinances that uh, we've proposed that would enable us to get these kinds of properties. Thank you, Michael. Madam President, members of City Council, I'm Jennifer Mullen with Roth Jackson. With me today is my law partner, Mark Cronenthal. Um, I just want to highlight, you know, as, as we've been talking about, currently we have an obsolete Coliseum, underutilized buildings, and surface parking. So what you're going to see, again, with the, the, the modifications to the text amendment under the Coliseum Mall District, as well as the other key land use components, is how that you take 
the, it, those issues and you turn that into both redeveloping and reconnecting this portion of downtown into the mixed-use pedestrian-oriented development. And this development is not only rooted in and consistent with the downtown plan and the Pulse Corridor plan, but it's actually written into the text of the Coliseum Mall text amendments, which I'll walk through, in addition to allowing other uses such as residential and prohibiting certain uses that you see here, uh, such as surface parking lots. These parcels do not exist in the form that you see today, in particular north of Broad, so you see identified generally A, B, C, D, E, F, and I. However, we're going to tie into um, the right-of-way ordinances, um, which are also part of your packet, as well as the right-of-way conditions that are attached to the development agreement in order to create these parcels. So we are consolidating and adjusting the lot lines in addition to closing certain right-of-ways, um, and I'll walk you through those pieces as well. So here in the red, again, this is the closure of certain right-of-ways. So you're not only creating portions of those parcels, particularly with B, uh, but you're also creating parcels for Clay Street to exist again, as well as 6th Street. And that's shown in the blue areas. And you're going to straighten up 5th Street on the left-hand side and 7th Street on the right-hand side. The blue hatching in between E and F becomes the Clay Street pedestrian area. In between D and I is Clay Street, which does not exist today. It has a building over top of it. And then on, in between A, E, and F, that becomes Clay Street between 5th and 7th Street. You'll also see, and I'll show you when we highlight the version of A and B, just to get into more details, areas of Clay Street and Lee Street that are, we're right-sizing those, so we're narrowing up the street to create an actual straight street for Clay Street instead of jumping um, as you move through the blocks, and then using portions of Lee Street to fill in and using that for the development parcels themselves. Again, outlining the parcels that we're creating, so you're creating the private development parcels just to identify here, so A, block A1 is the parcel in the middle. This is the arena parcel. A2 and A3 are on either side. Again, these parcels don't exist today, along with F1B below. So everything in the hatching on the sides of 5th and 7th, that gets closed and dedicated back as right-of-way. You have portions of Lee Street at the, on the north that gets dedicated. A2 is the residential. A3 is the office side. And this gives you a ground plane, and this ties into the, the text amendment that we're going to walk through and, and a few of the other ordinances themselves. These all work well together, again, to get back to that mixed-use, pedestrian-oriented development that ties directly into the Pulse Corridor Plan as well as the downtown plan uh, previously. You use the modified regulations of the Coliseum Mall District to create this ground plane. So what you see here in the orange, that represents commercial. The blue represents office use, and the yellow represents uh, residential. So you're going to use that to create the ground plane that is active with your pedestrian-oriented development, and that means transparency both at the ground level, breaking, bringing the building up to the street, and also having fenestration requirements, all designed with a modified intent statement to bolster the dense, walkable, transit-oriented development that's consistent with the goals of the master plan. So here, and I'll just flip back to that, as Michael noted, so in the center, that's an existing parking garage, and you can see the blue lines that show the different places where this parcel doesn't exist today, 
just going back here, so in the red, doesn't exist, and you're creating a developable parcel that then keys off of those six principles of the Pulse Corridor Plan and really creating that active ground plane that, that identifies all the pieces that make people want to stay longer. They want to come and they want to shop. They want to live and work in this area as well as be entertained. And so then you have an opened clay street all the way through these parcels, taking what is a strip of grass in between the parking garage and the street and creating that active street uh, as well as the active uses on the ground floor with either residential or office above. And that's done in a variety of ways with the reconfiguration of the right-of-way itself. So this has a legend that has multiple dedications, closures, um, as well as our requirements under the documents themselves. Again, with the six design elements, so to get you back to the overall ground plane, and it may be next in my slide set, the overall ground plane so that you achieve these pieces. So here, you've got a new ground plane created with the six design principles that are now worked into the text of the CM regulations that are being proposed for modification before you. With the fenestration requirements, transparency at the ground level, you have the open space minimum requirements that didn't exist previously, priority street and commercial-oriented streets, plus removing certain uses, as I mentioned, through surface parking lots as a principal use, as well as adding uses, such as residential, in addition to different types of commercial. With the developer funding these new developments, with the minimum standards of development that are identified in the uses through the master plan attached to the development agreement, together with the project schedule. All key components which are required for each block, tying into the community benefits, all of which are confirmed prior to the sale of any block such as affordable housing, the convention room and hotel room block agreement, as Michael mentioned, reopening Clay Street and 6th Street, the GRTC Transit Center, minority contracting and job opportunities, to name a few. With the development area to create the critical mass concurrent with the construction of the arena, as Ms. Eastridge will go into further detail, all with land use requirements identified in the master plan attached to the development agreement with green building standards for the buildings, infrastructure exceeding regulatory requirements to achieve the intent of the Coliseum Mall District for a dense, walkable environment with transit-oriented development, all constructed and maintained by the developer. So if you see up before you, you have the existing Coliseum Mall District areas outlined in pink with the remaining portions of the property zoned B4. So we are proposing to rezone the whole to the Coliseum Mall District, together with those modifications that I outlined in the CM Coliseum Mall District itself. And this allows for that private development pursuant to the master plan that is attached to the development agreement in order to achieve the goals that we've discussed previously with the pedestrian-oriented development. It imposes new priority streets in the area, as well as commercial-oriented street fronts, which, again, get to the form of the development that makes sure that we have that pedestrian-oriented nature in order to achieve all of the components of the master plan that's attached to the development agreement to achieve the revenues that are necessary to repay the bond debt for the arena and make for a thriving new portion of this area of downtown. And I'll turn this over to Susan Eastridge. who will provide more details on those components, if she could come up.
Good midday, Madam President and members of the Council. I am Susan Eastridge. I'm a member of the Navy Hill development team. I have about 30 plus years of public-private development experience and still very rejuvenated each day on the wonderful synergies of the public sector joining with the private sector to make things happen. We always say where there's a will, there's a way. I'm going to turn the conversation over to some of the important underpinnings of the project, which have to do with finance. I am not a finance expert. I'm a development expert, but I will walk you through these important mechanics. The arena itself, the current budget is $235 million. That's all hard and soft costs to produce a new state-of-the-art arena. The bond issuance associated with our current underwriting estimates a bond issuance of about $305 million. That's today's underwriting. The difference between 235 and 305 is within the bond issuance, there's a couple of years of capitalized interest, so the bond buyers will receive interest payments during the construction before the properties start producing revenues. There's also the cost of the issuance in that. The private development that we're leveraging in this instance is totally budgeted at $1.3 billion. Those are both hard and soft costs. That's made up of $520 million of private equity and $780 million of construction loans. In the practice of commercial real estate development, we spend all of the private equity first and then we roll in construction loans, thereby the private investors are bearing the greater risk. This is a very important component. When there's discussion about what development activities will take place while the new arena is constructed, it's quite a bit. Um, you've seen the different labeling of the blocks within Navy Hill, and we call the first sequence of private development the CAFE blocks, block C, A, F, and E, plus D. Block D is a large build-a-suit leaseback project that will be financed um, alongside of the CAFE blocks in a separate financing. So this first sequence of development, it, it encompasses eight and a half acres of the 14 and quarter total acreage that's involved in the Navy Hill project. Total land and acquisition costs, 15.8 million that will be paid to the city upfront and held in escrow as each parcel is brought down for development. The total development costs of C, A, F, and E plus D are a little over $860 million. This is, this is the reference to the $900 million, somewhat rounded up, of development activity that's concurrent to the development of the arena itself, producing at the time of the new arena nearly 2 million square feet of new commercial space. These are parcels A, E, and F of the CAFE blocks. We bring on block C and block D and E. At full build-out, we bring in blocks I, B, U, and N. I'm going to walk through a little bit of the underwriting assumptions that have to do with the plan of finance for the new arena. Some of the original considerations was that we thought we could achieve a bond issuance that would be a combination of tax-exempt and taxable bonds. Our current underwriting has $278 million 
of the $305 million issuance as tax-exempt debt. $27 million is taxable. Of the $305 million, as we've discussed, $235 million will be used to produce the new arena. Additional considerations um, from the get-go is how to underwrite the arena um, bond issuance with no general or moral obligations by the city. This is a um, type of bond issuance where the bond investors themselves will receive a slightly higher interest rate than a bond issuance that might be backed in some way by a city government. An important consideration is the use of our not-for-profit sponsor, which is the NH District Corporation as a nonprofit collaborating with the conduit issuer, the Economic Development Authority, for the bond issuance. And as mentioned earlier by Leonard, the surplus revenues will be split 50-50 between the city and the bondholders until the full payoff of the bonds. Just to give an order of magnitude of the various revenue sources that will come into play to repay the bond debt. And again, I'm showing you orders of magnitude by category. You'll see the first category I put up is a little over $227 million. And these are important revenues because these come from the new arena themselves as well as the renovated armory. Supplemental parking revenues and then corporate sponsorships tied into the arena itself will be over $200 million of contribution to the bond re repayment. The next is the Navy Hill buildings themselves will generate $281 million of property taxes. And these are all these 30-year projections that you've been seeing in all of the economic analysis. The next is sales tax generated by the new Navy Hill buildings. The next is the lodging tax produced by the new Hyatt Regency Convention Center Hotel. The consideration here is that um, after the bond payments are made for the convention center, excess revenue goes back to the sponsors of that debt, and we are proposing that the lodging tax only related to our new Hyatt Regency Hotel be um, directed for the bond repayment. The next bucket is the meal taxes and B-pull taxes, again calculated over the 30-year term. And then the incremental property tax that comes from the overall incremental financing area district is that top bucket. Obviously, all of these buckets will be tapped into over the course of the bond repayment. This is simply to show you the order of magnitude of each of those buckets. The 30-year projection has a little bit over a billion dollars of revenue produced. There's an accelerated payoff analysis that Davenport has provided in their economic and fiscal impact report that shows an accelerated payoff of the arena bonds within 21 years at about $476 million. The community benefits, um, it's important um, to note. Council President, I have a question on that slide. Yes, Ms. Larson. So do we have a copy of this electronically? Um, I believe that's in process. This okay. is this we big, big slideshow. <laughs> it, it will be. Or this presentation. I don't have a paper copy. Yeah, I, it's my understanding that a paper copy is my expectation yeah. that we will have an electronic copy of the entire presentation 
Mr. Uh, Mark, that we didn't have call marks. I'm sorry, we didn't have before as well as this one. Will be made available okay. to we'll, all council we'll get members. It. So, what is? Do you have this broken down by what's coming in each year? Because I, I believe a council member asked about that. We re did recently. Uh, if you would just uh, allow me so that we can be responsive. Megan, you have that information? We did request that from the administration. Um, they are working with um, Davenport as well as Hunden to break down those revenue projections and expenditures by each of the years. So um, they did provide responses to the other questions that you guys had from your ODN meeting, which I did provide, but that was the last thing that we are waiting for, and the administration does know that that's, we're still expected to receive that. And then as we get these responses, are we putting them up on online? We have uh, not done that, but what we will do, we've been making them available to council members. We can certainly make them available to the public in whatever ways uh, we have access. So absolutely, okay. I, even I, though I, they haven't been, we can right. begin to do that. I think if that. we're asking a question publicly, and we're not given an answer in that moment, we should definitely share the answers publicly. Absolutely. I mean, always the intent was to bring it back to council to put that information out. Um, and yes, we'll put them in all the places that we have opportunity. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Please continue. I'm sorry to disrupt there. Um, during the course of the request for proposals that the city conducted, and then the ensuing negotiations with city administration, many community benefits were put on the table and incorporated into Navy Hill. They ranged from the affordable housing, minority participation, many of the infrastructure improvements that are part of the project. Um, importantly, the Convention Center Hotel with the room block agreement to benefit the Convention Center business. Talked about jobs, the transit center, the historic renovations of the Blues Armory and Richmond Garage, um, demolition and defeasance of the Coliseum debt, um, expenses that will be borne by Navy Hill, utilities. Um, we will be uh, developing all of the properties to a lead silver sustainability standard and then to repeat the no city liability for the bonds, for the management of the arena or the armory, or for the maintenance of either of those. We focused a lot of our discussions and negotiations with the city about the idea of community wealth building for the city. Navy Hill is a project that can create some economic stimulus and growth that can benefit all residents. Navy Hill, our proposal, supports the development of 680 new affordable dwelling units through three different programs. Within Navy Hill itself, within the buildings we'll be building, there will be 280 dwelling units designated for 60% and 80% AMI, both for rent and for sale. The achievement of for sale properties are important to allow individuals and families to create equity ownership of real estate in downtown Richmond. There's 168 of these units will be at 80% AMI and 112 units at 60%. Um, Navy Hill was asked and delivered 
$10 million in philanthropy that can spawn another 200 affordable units. This was through a $5 million matching grant from the Community Foundation that's been provided to the not-for-profit Better Housing Coalition to develop these units. We also further proposed that the city would steer the first $10 million in excess incremental finance area revenues generated by Navy Hill to spawn another 200 affordable units. So it's those three programs that, that identify the 680 unit potential for Navy Hill. Minority business participation is in three areas. Minority business participation, we've pledged a $300 million goal for MBE participation within the project. We have retained a minority business coordinator to both recruit and monitor MBE participation, and this is elaborated in a great amount of detail within the development agreement. Also, Navy Hill is actively supporting workforce training and recruitment efforts to put jobs in place for Richmond residents. This is an important grassroots effort that's being deployed currently. Hmm? Um, minority investment recruitment. We are actively encouraging minority investors to invest in Navy Hill. There's two different modes of investment. One is opportunity zone investments or conventional investments. I would note that the opportunity zone investment was not something we envisioned day one, but, but a lot of Navy Hill is in now in a designated opportunity zone. And we'll go into this in more detail during the finance workshop. But there's an important deadline coming up for opportunity zone investments, which is December 31st of this year, where investors will be able to receive the full benefit of the Opportunity Zone if they invest by December 31st. This is of keen interest to the minority investors that are coming into the project, and we're hoping very much we can meet that deadline for them. Minimum investment in the project by an individual or a single entity is $1 million. However, smaller investors at a minimum of $25,000 each can be invited into an investment pool. There also is the opportunity throughout Navy Hill to establish and operate businesses. We have retail spaces, commercial spaces, and office spaces that can induce new minority and existing minority and local businesses within the project. Yes, Mr. Jones. Madam President, thank you. Uh, just, just real quick, uh, I've asked before, and I just want this on the record since since this is a work session. And let me say this, uh, Council uh, Person Larson brought up a great uh, suggestion. Um, I, I, and that, that, that just struck me, it, it really did, Kristen, that you know, questions that we do ask in public, typically they're just sent to us on the back end. And I'm not gonna lie, I've never even thought about the, the impact of you know, making those statements uh, public. So, uh, th thank you for thank you for doing that, uh, and um, I, I truly support that, Madam President, and making sure that that happens. And just say, let me say, Mr. Jones, I've already, as I spoke with yeah. uh, in follow up, spoke with uh, Ms. Brown, and we will put the questions and the responses and the presentations on Granicus. Yeah, I, I just thought that yeah. was that that was a thank great you. catch. Um, so, so second piece: How, how did we um, 
arrive at the $300 million uh, number. What, what's, what was the process and thought behind that? That was involved in the negotiations. Um, we were talking about 30%, and then we decided it would probably be better to have an actual dollar goal. And so the back and forth process of discussing how we might achieve that, we arrived at the $300 million. And I don't know that it was any more complicated than that. Okay, okay, okay. And, and again, just for, for people that are quicker with math uh, than I am, I haven't put an actual pen to it. What does that 300 represent? What percent of the entire piece is that? Well, if, if the overall private development is 1.3 billion plus the arena takes up to a billion and a half. So I don't do math in public, but. 20%, okay. Um, 20%, I, I, thought, I thought it was a bit shy of that. Uh, and I even asked in uh, a meeting with uh, Ms. Mullen, you know, how, one, how realistic is it for us to get to that 300 million, then recognizing that it's 20% uh, was in a meeting this um, past week where different projects that are private projects, uh, they do have the flexibility uh, to, I, I understand on our end, we can't say it has to be uh, a particular number or dollar amount going to uh, uh, minority-owned businesses or uh, SWAM businesses and things of that nature. But mm -hmm. um, I believe on the other side, they can be uh, more uh, uh, intentional in that. So, so my question is, and not that I'm looking for an answer right now versus just lifting it up. One, how do we ensure that we hit the 300 million that is 20%. But then, as our city is roughly 50% 50, 50 uh, uh, people of color, how do we ensure, can we make that number grow from 300 million to that 30 to 35% um, to make sure that happens? One. Secondly, well, that is second piece. Third piece is, um, you know, to ensure that we utilize and not come up with excuses about why we can't utilize um, SWAM business as far as, well, we don't have individuals that do this type of work or anything of that nature. When Atlanta did uh, their airport, uh, they understood that uh, many of the businesses down there may not be able to build an airport, but they figured if they have, if they had minority companies that um, could lay concrete, concrete is concrete, whether it's in a housing uh, project or whether it's uh, 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 laying something for the tarmac. But again, what they sought to do in Atlanta was to make sure that they brought uh, uh, minority businesses along to ensure that they could do something of that nature and to assist. And for me, you know, even as we start this process and uh, if we get to the end where it's finished, that we would be concerned with, uh, you know, utilizing minority contractors for things from pan painting, florist, uh, uh, there, there was a couple that uh, was at uh, was at our meeting, had no idea. Uh, LGBTQ couple uh, um, that that they ran a trucking business, and they said, "How can we be a part of that?" And for me, that's what this process should be about. How do we create uh, minority wealth in this process? Um, and so I was excited about that. Didn't know that that uh, talent was right in my district. Uh, you know, and so I think that that's positive. So again, 
you know, how do we make sure that we at least get to that 300 million and not make excuses that, hey, we can't find them? And then is there poten the potentiality to raise it from that 20% threshold to 30? Um, and then how do we make sure that we are utilizing every minority-owned business across the spectrum and get creative in that? Again, painters, florists, uh, hauling companies, whatever it is, to be intentional. So we're not just seeing the same, and, and let me say this, so we're not just seeing the same minority-owned businesses used. Um, because that's something that I've heard that, well, hey, they always use this company or this is their go-to company. How can other companies uh, uh, get involved in that? So, thank you. Uh, you're, you're right, $300 million is a, a, a big number, and we're currently doing an assessment to try to c consider every possible job, not just involved in the construction part of the project, but in operations also. And I think when we have that assessment put together, that's the information that needs to go out into the community. We're hoping that it will induce new businesses as well as existing businesses. So there'll be training issues. I met with a local banker this morning and was laying out the types of credit support that new and emerging businesses might need to participate in this project. So I think we have to hit it from a lot of different angles. Thank you. And so, Ms. Larson, I'll do the one question. We'll take a break and then we'll come back. But Ms. Eastridge, what I don't want to have missed as a future conversation in terms of what Mr. Jones raised was uh, a more rigorous MBE SWAM strategy that looks at how do we move from 20% to closer to what I think many have been talking about, 35 or more, and then that dollar amount associated, but then also the intentionality around utilization of the small businesses. So we, staff will, has captured that, Mr. Jones, and we'll come back with that so we can look at that opportunity. Didn't want to lose that. Ms. Larson? Thank you. I'm sorry, Ms. Eastridge. Thank you. Ms. Larson. Um, so along those same lines, do you all have any parameters set up for local businesses? Uh, Ms. Mullins, Ms. Eastridge, I'm not sure who's coming forward. A lot of times what happens with these big construction projects is they come in and they bring folks from out of town and it really does not have that impact that we're looking for locally. Sure. And they, you know, go with the lowest bidder, and a lot of times that is not the local guy. Sure, I appreciate that. Um, and in the development agreement itself, in the in the same minority participation components, there are requirements for for job fairs, and that so that we see this as two separate components to have make sure that you have the workers trained and ready to apply, as well as the the contracting side. So through the MBE coordinator to make sure that we are getting as many local minority-owned businesses encouraging ones that don't exist to, to come into fruition or to make sure that they are registered in order to have that, breaking those contracts down so that they're able to participate on the, the various levels that Mr. Jones described, but then also making sure that through the job fairs and their requirements to go out into every district, into the, the, the six courts, just making sure that we are as available as possible in order to make sure that everyone who is um, looking for a job or looking for a different type of job is ready to apply and then ready to to be put to work at the same time so that all of that can happen and that's required to happen um, if this package is approved it's required to happen even even at the, the beginning and we're actually starting those discussions now to make sure that we are 
we're capturing the folks that we met um, at the 9th District meeting that, that have that opportunity. We've sent that back through the construction team so they can go ahead and start reaching out. And what we've, we've asked, honestly, is for assistance. Tell, tell us different ways that we can reach out to you and tell us different ways that we can capture that information, not just to have it, but then to put it to, to use. So do you have an MBE coordinator on board already? Um, yes, a few months ago we did retain a coordinator because we knew we had to get ahead of this to really be ready to accept that level of contracting. Okay, and is it someone local? Yeah. Okay. So is that Miss Larson? I was just going to ask who it is. Yeah, I was going to ask, is that not shareable information at this point? Um, oh, it's, it's shareable. He's active in the community. Mike Hopkins okay. is doing the coordination work, and we're working closely with the Office of Community Wealth Building, trying to really identify as many programs and strategies as we can. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Larson, had you completed? Okay. And, and, and again, though, not, not to, to, to not say that the entirety of her question wasn't dealt with, but what I heard uh, Ms. Larson saying was ensuring that individuals um, that are awarded these contracts, not just the job fair mm -hmm. aspect, but, and this is what I heard, to make sure that people that are getting these larger contracts are Richmond, RVA, Richmond Metro area individuals because I've gone out and I've talked to different crews. Hey, we're from North Carolina. Well, hey, welcome to the Old Dominion, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, and said some other things about whether or not they were Duke or Carolina fans. Um, but, but again, to ensure that if this if this is a Richmond, you know, initiative, how are we making sure and intentional in using talent that's here um, and I don't want to get into the whole contracting piece of, hey, we have a lower number, and then once we get into it, we take the company that gave us a lower number, and then that company, after a few you know, more passes, that number is then higher. All right? And I don't want to get into that right now, but I want to make sure that, um, I want to make sure that Richmond residents fare well in this process, that the dollars that are generated, created here in this Richmond metro area impact businesses and people that run businesses in the Richmond metropolitan area. So I want to make sure that that is absolutely clear, uh, uh, Madam President, that contractors and, you know, subs and things of that nature, that that happens. And then some, and, and again, I'm, I'm, Jennifer, these are conversations you and I have, have had, and so this is not catching, you know, Jennifer off, uh, or Miss Mullen rather, off. But just for the record, um, just our conversations and meetings that is just made public. You know, just you know, labor agreements to make sure that the individuals that are out here, that someone's not able to undercut another company because they may or may not be paying individuals and providing benefits for individuals as would another particular company. So making sure that the, the, the playing field is level and making sure that we, we go at this uh, uh, correctly. So. Thank you, Mr. Jones and Ms. Larson. Again, um, what we're going to want, and, and the, the 
converse, these questions have come up with two council members who've raised it, others who probably haven't, certainly with myself, documented response about the rigorous strategies that will be utilized to address the concerns that have been raised. Um, whether that's the, again, MBE SWAM percent, general number, the jobs interface with office community wealth building, utilizing local how and what will be done, but we'll really want a documented rigorous response to the inquiries and staff will follow up with that as they're also capturing these. Mr. Sledge? President Newbill, we have heard counsel loud and clear Thank and you. understand the intentionality of the request and we will respond in writing. Thank you. And, and we will also ensure that to the councilwoman's uh, question earlier, we will make sure that the presentations uh, as well as the answers that have been provided in writing to council are posted on the city's website. Right. Well. Thank you. And we will, uh, as I said, also make sure that they're posted with Granicus from our side. Ms. Robinson, did you have a question? I, I couldn't. Um, Madam Chair, I have, I've got maybe two or three legal pads of questions that so I'd what like I'll ask so um, what I would what I would like for us to get back to is maybe uh, continue this discussion as to how we're going to look at this um, right. in a process that we can manage the questions and making sure that we're getting answers to those questions I think the components that have been emphasized are critical um, but I think the sooner we come to an agreement on those components and the order and council can put all our questions in for those components and get those answers back sure uh the better i will be because i mean i do I, when i say and I'm we all do we all it. have a list of them so, all do. so, so uh, what i'd like to offer um is that we go on and take a break we were going to reconvene at one we do have um draft um topics for each of the other four sessions. However, the full out discussion should be when the full body is here. And so I would look to do that at informal uh, session this afternoon. Okay, Ms. Larson. Um, did you all circulate the draft? Topics? No, I was just bringing them to share, but I was looking to have a full conversation. The, the draft topics? Um, yeah. Okay. Okay, that would be great to discuss. And I would also like to discuss, um, and I, I, I'm not, I don't want the folks who presented this morning to take offense to this, but um, I think we need to just be mindful about how we're structuring this time. Absolutely. Um, and I think we might want to look at a limit on presentations. Um, this was very thorough information um, a lot of this information had been shared with all of us at some point in different iterations. Um, and I also think, and this is just my personal view, but I'd be interested to see what other council members think. You know, the, the finances, like Council Member Jones was saying, you know, if, if we don't get into the weeds of that, and drill down on that and get to a place where we're comfortable about it, it doesn't matter how amazing 10 other cities are and how that program can work in Richmond. We need to see if the finances, if the logistics, if the details work. And so if 
we're going to continue with these work sessions, I would just like to really be efficient with our time. I would concur with you. And so future sessions are the drill downs, the finance and operating structures, property transfers, private development, right-of-ways, uh, project structure, what are the legal and contractual components, safeguards, protections. I mean, really, it's the deep dive. Um, I know I'm looking for, and I believe we're all looking for. Um, I had hoped to start with a deeper dive today, but ORIC could not be here. And that would have gotten us the bond council, but could not. It was just literally um, out of town. And so we weren't able, that's where I was looking to start. So uh, at this point, at least to, uh, with the presentation, to get the overall macro, but I'm looking for the drill down like you as well. And so just thank you. Again, with the, the time limit on the presentation, yes. I think we did that for budget, if I remember correctly. We did, and, and we will. Okay, mm -hmm. thank you. Thank you. So with that, I'm going to Ms. Mullins, did you have? Madam President, just yes. one quick item, just on the, on the timing. Because this was the generalized overview, that is, and we will be extremely mindful, and particularly on the drill down, able to focus more. But having given different presentations in different, in different districts, we wanted to make sure that everyone had the benefit of the generalized overview. But we appreciate that, and we'll be very focused on the future presentations. Thank you. And staff will work, uh, Ms. our staff, Ms. Larson, will work in the same way we did with um, our budget session. But the intent was, because it's to really have that macro and then to do the drill down since we couldn't start with the micro I wanted to around finance today. So with that, uh, we will uh, uh, recess until 1 and then come back uh, for a Q&A session. Thank you.
Members of Council, if you will join me on the dais, we will reconvene our work session. <laughs> Members of Council, if you'll rejoin me on the dais, we'll begin our work session. At this point, we have uh, had presentation, thank you very much, from all of the presenters uh, from early on. We will, uh, and as we uh, have shared, some of the questions have been uh, shared with you during the work session itself. Others uh, that have been compiled from prior overviews and discussions of the project will also be compiled and provided uh, to you by Megan Brown, our uh, Chief of Staff. And uh, at this point, Ms. Larson, Ms. Robertson, I believe Mr. Jones is in the back, we will um, end this first work session knowing that all of the questions that have come forth will be provided to the administration as well as to our presenters for a documented response back to us. And then, of course, as we shared in the work session, posting of those questions and posting of the presentations, the questions, and the responses. We will also talk later about uh, some of what came up today is aligning time-wise when all of these pieces will uh, and how they will work together, some rough date that we'll give each ourselves for completion and we'll go from there. Any further comments, concerns? Ms. Larson. Um, just real quick, Councilmember Agilesto and I met with um, some folks from the administration last week and the question of the appraisal came up and the administration indicated they would not be doing an appraisal of the city land that is slated to be conveyed in this deal. So I just wanted to mention that so that we get that response in writing and it can be shared with all council members because it was asked in a public forum. Okay, and we will follow up with that item as well. Ms. Robertson, any additional comment? Additional comments? Um, yeah, we're closing. No, I, I think I shared what my concern is in, in the process of how we go through the review Yes, um, that I would like to map out and so that we can come to a consensus of that process. And then once we have done that, then I think we will be able to move forward with the critical evaluation of this development. Um, okay, thank you. I want to thank all members who were able to attend. I know that uh, it is uh, a really time investment, but again, this is a mega project coming before our city for vetting consideration and decisioning. And so uh, we will certainly uh, 
look to do due diligence, look to do major drill downs, uh, especially in terms of the areas that have been raised, but certainly are concerns for us all around the finances of the project uh, and doing a deeper dive there. So just to say again, thank you. And uh, we will uh, continue our work sessions. Next session would be We were looking to do Monday, first, October 7th. Yes, do the uh, the Mondays that we are already here so that we're not creating additional uh, day att attempts to schedule days, but we will have the Monday. So it'll be the first Monday prior to OD. We're looking at the second and fourth uh, Mondays uh, prior to council uh, such that we can, again, uh, drill down and get the questions answered so that we can fully vet and make an uh, informed decision relative to uh, the project. Again, thank you. This session is adjourned, and I will uh, look forward to seeing us all back for informal this afternoon. Thank you.